Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Everybody, this is Tony Kaminsky. I'm here with Brian Rizepa, and welcome back to the Luckiest Man podcast for today's episode on the year 1906. As always, if you enjoy the show, give us a five star rating on iTunes and follow us at Luckiest Man Pod on Twitter. Enjoy the show. What's up, man? Well, Tony, I'm being going to be honest with you here. Working through a cold right now. I would say this is uh, this is pretty much the Jordan flu version of the Luckiest Man podcast. That's our. This is us. This is a Willis Reed broken leg game. Kirk man. Gibson. I'm working through it though. This is a gutsy performance. But we you do it all for the listeners. The expectations are awfully high for this one. What can I say? You know, it had to be done. We were a little bit late last week, so I knew. Couldn't miss out on this week. Yeah. Last two weeks. Only a national holiday. That's the only reason why we would ever delay our listeners from their beloved podcast. We've worked through funerals, marriages, births, deaths, uh, all within within six episodes. So, you know, we're we're really hitting all our bases. Our lives are are really changing. (laughs) (laughs) Been fired, hired, fired again. Yeah, we're, we're on a roll here, though. Yep. Well, before we get going on to the year 1906, I promised the people that I would do a little bit of homework over the preceding two weeks and follow up on gambling legislation. We follow through on our word. We do. Well, you do, but... So let me, let me, let me touch back on something real quick, and then we'll get into the new year. All right. We're finally in the, the back half. The back nine of our first decade. <laughs> of our first decade, yeah. Yeah. We're getting How, there. How's it feel? Well, like you said, you know, we've uh, we've been working through a lot. A lot of turmoil. <laughs> <laughs> we're gutting through it, and uh, we're making it out on the other end. Some of the other decades are way crazier than this, too. So. Correct. <laughs> this is... This is a, yes. <laughs> especially, I mean, just because of the... Just the amount of information available of 1906 versus, like, 1996 is going to be... Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. One thing, too, I'll note. I was trying to find some, like, for a separate topic for the show, but I was trying to find, like, some polling on just American, like, quality of life. Right. Or, like, in, like, general, like, overall societal satisfaction type data. You really can't get it. No. But... 
soon. We're getting there. There's more. There's a lot more widespread polling. So that's something interesting that I found. But anyways, well, who knows how real those polls are, Tony? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Should I even touch on that? <laughs> let me let me just talk about the gambling stuff, and then we'll get out of here. Let's go. In our last episode, I discussed the history of Las Vegas and, by extension, United States gambling legislation and the impact that it had on Las Vegas, as well as Galveston, Texas. I wanted to take a moment to provide a bit of information on this matter, specifically why a mid-century crackdown on gambling activities led to Galveston having to dramatically alter its economy while Las Vegas continued on its path. By the early 20th century, gambling was almost university, yeah, universally outlawed in all American territories. As a result, it became a largely illegal activity and helped spur the growth of the mafia as well as other criminal organizations. This trend was further emphasized during the Prohibition era when cities that already had a laxed attitude towards alcohol, such as Galveston, became a hub for vice activity. Now, this is where I can provide some clarity as to the discussion from last episode. In 1931, Nevada became the first state to re-legalize casino gambling, as the state was trying to stimulate economic growth during the Great Depression. As a result, Las Vegas was not impacted by the aforementioned anti-gambling enforcement crackdown that came after World War II, while Galveston was. In the 1940s and 50s, states slowly began to repeal anti-gambling laws, beginning with paramutual horse betting and low-stakes charity gambling. By 1997, 25 states and three territories had legalized true casinos through statutes and tribal state compacts. So, yeah. Turn of the century, Nevada was the last state out west to outlaw gambling, and then they were the first to re-legalize it. They just really didn't want to get rid of it at all, I don't think. It's a part of their state's culture. Good for them. So, yeah. Just wanted to clear that up. Interesting. Speaking of uh, horse races, you ever been to the horse races, Tony? Yes, one time in Keeneland, Kentucky. How was that? It was a great. It was it was a blast. I went to Northville Downs like uh, a couple weeks ago. It was a very interesting experience. It's a weird place. Yeah, never <laughs> been to that one. Well, Keeneland, I don't know anything about horse racing, but Keeneland is like like the big time one of the one of the big ones. Like the same, some of the same horses that are in the Kentucky Derby and stuff go there. Interesting. Yeah. That they are certainly not coming to Northville. I can, yeah. I can tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming it's a bit of a different crowd. Uh, yeah, it, it sure is. But uh, it's an experience unlike any other. I can only imagine, and I'll just have to take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. Again, I'll take one for the team. Let's see what other performances I can will myself through. All right, Tony. Um, you know, just. Uh, you got us continuing on from a previous episode, but to just continue on from a theme that is carried out throughout the entire podcast, let's start ourselves with a natural disaster. One that's very well known as well. Um, Always do. So at around 5 a.m. on Wednesday, April 18th in 1906, residents of the city of San Francisco were forcefully awakened from their sleep, starting off with a foreshock that was felt all throughout the Bay Area an earthquake broke loose and the entire area came crashing to a halt. Traveling at a speed of 8,300 miles per hour, the city began falling around its residents in no time. Chimneys were shaken off of houses, gas lines broke, and walls of both houses and buildings caved in. Throughout the area, large swaths of pavement were bunched on top of each other, and it began to make the ground look like waves. 
In other areas, the ground completely split open, with one such opening being measured at an incredible 28 feet. With it being such an early hour of the day, many did not have the chance to even get out of bed before falling debris had struck and killed them. Lasting, as stunned as people were, the earthquake was over just as quickly as it had begun. Lasting around 45 seconds or a minute, the main rupture was just the beginning of the problems for people in the area. Due to the intense shaking, gas lines had been broken and stoves throughout the city had been shaken from household kitchens, along with the ham and eggs fire, which was was along with that the ham and eggs fire was started as the earthquake hit when a woman was making breakfast for her family. Through though the earthquake had claimed many lives, the fires that had started throughout the city did even more damage. Over the course of three days, 30 fires had been recorded, and they destroyed around 25,000 buildings across 500 city blocks. To make matters worse, the city's fire chief, Dennis T. Sullivan, was killed during the earthquake and left behind a relatively untrained force. These firefighters, with no real direction without their chief, began to try to demolish buildings in order to create fire breaks. In the process of destroying these buildings, the firefighters used dynamite and many times caused the buildings to go up in flames themselves. As fires were put out and observers were able to survey the damage, the level of destruction was unbelievable. Beyond the fact that over 80% of the city of San Francisco had been destroyed, up to 3,000 lives had been taken by what would eventually be measured as a 7.9 earthquake on the Richter scale a mark that still stands today as the largest earthquake in the continental United States. With almost $11 billion in damages in today's dollars caused by the earthquake and subsequent fires, the number was inflated due to insurance practices. While most homeowners throughout the city had fire insurance, insurers of the time were less likely to provide earthquake insurance. Seeing that they would have no recourse for the earthquake damage, many throughout the city took to setting their own homes on fire in order to claim the insurance money. Relief efforts were started, and within a few days, over $5 million had been raised. As the city began to rebuild, safety measures were put in place to ensure that buildings would be able to have a chance at withstanding future quakes. Standing today as one of the most populous cities in the United States, the earthquake of 1906 shook San Francisco to its core and almost destroyed the city entirely. Two points. One, Great Baltimore Fire, they also attempted to use fire breaks, and it also did not work then. Backfired immediately. Two, also touching back on previous themes from this podcast, I bet that the San Francisco earthquake led to an enhanced building code. I'm sure. Well, like I told you in ninth, in last week's episode, I told you this one would tra- would trace back quite a bit, and we're just getting started here with uh, how we're going to be touching back and forth. But yeah, I mean, eighty percent of such a major city just completely destroyed in the matter of three days through earthquakes and fire. So pretty crazy to think of uh, if it was a hundred percent done away with what the country would be like without San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, obviously one of our most iconic. Cities, and we, we never had full house, so just think about that. <laughs> a great, <laughs> a vital addition to the to the American canon. <laughs> yeah. I'll be in San Francisco in a couple weeks. Really? Yeah. Just visiting or no vacation? Going to see a Giants game? I am. That'll be cool. I am. Did you did you, did you see the Giants game yesterday? No. 
uh, Madison Bumgarner got taken deep by Max Muncy of the Dodgers, and they, uh, in, in typical Madison Bumgarner fashion, did not take well to Muncy watching the home run flying in McCovey Cove. I love that guy. Which one? Bumgarner. Uh, yeah, well, apparently he was yelling at Muncy, and uh, Muncy said, go get the ball back from McCovey Cove. So so you'll, you'll enjoy uh, San Francisco, I'm sure. Yeah, we're, we're the first part of the week. The I think it's June thirtieth, or or twenty ninth rather, is the Friday. If I'm not mistaken, we're flying into LA. Going to stay in Los Angeles first half of the week, seeing a Dodgers game. Cool. Then on Wednesday, we're driving up, renting a car, driving up the Pacific Coast Highway. We're staying one night in between. I forget the name of the town but it's like halfway up the halfway up the coast we're staying at airbnb for one night and then next day we're driving to san francisco gonna see a game there as well and then flying out sunday so looking forward to it you ever been to california no no i'm sure you'll enjoy it yeah it's gonna be fun anywho tony so somewhere else that is uh that is close to your heart (laughs) yeah let's talk about the jungle In 1904, Upton Sinclair spent several weeks working undercover at Chicago's Union Stockyards, then one of the largest meatpacking districts in the world, to conduct research for his novel, The Jungle, which was ultimately released in 1906 and was written in order to portray the meat industry and the conditions that stockyards workers often had to endure. The fictitious novel tells the story of the Rudkus family, a group of Lithuanian immigrants that had recently immigrated to the United States and moved to Chicago's back-of-the-yards neighborhood on the south side. The main character of the story, Jurgis, takes a job at Brown Slaughterhouse, where he's confronted with a challenging work environment. The Rudkises are preyed upon by con men and fall into debt, later being evicted from their home. One by one, members of the Rudkis family die as a result of poverty or conditions at work, until Jurgis leaves Chicago to pursue agricultural work and becomes an alcoholic. He later returns to the city after being turned away by farmers at the end of their harvest, is given a job by a socialist protagonist, and resumes support of his wife's family. Sinclair's efforts to publish The Jungle were met with resistance because of the book's gruesome and shocking nature. One Macmillan employee writing, I advise without hesitation and unreservedly against the publication of this book, which is gloom and horror unrelieved. One feels that what is at the bottom of his fierceness is not nearly so much a desire to help the poor as hatred of the rich. Ultimately, the book was picked up by Doubleday Publishing and sold 25,000 copies in the first six weeks of publication. It has been in print ever since. Sinclair wrote The Jungle with the goals of advancing socialism in the United States and exposing the meat industry. However, his book became noteworthy for an entirely different reason altogether. The publication of The Jungle led to massive public outcry over the health violations and unsanitary conditions at American meatpacking plants. Sinclair was quoted as saying, I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. Uh-oh, technical difficulties. Though the book ultimately prompted President Theodore Roosevelt to send inspectors to Chicago's meatpacking plants, he had a negative opinion of Sinclair, saying, I have an utter contempt for him. He is hysterical, unbalanced, and untruthful. Three-fourths of the things he said were absolute falsehoods. For some of the remainder, there was only a basis of truth. Learning of the impending inspector visits, owners of the plants had workers clean their factories, but the investigators were still repulsed by the conditions. The oral report given to Roosevelt corroborated much of what Sinclair had reported, though a notable exception being the occurrence of workers falling into rendering vats and being ground along with animal parts, a passage of the novel that particularly gripped the public. 
The Bureau of Animal Industry issued a report rejecting Sinclair's most severe allegations, characterizing them as intentionally misleading and false, willful and deliberate misrepresentations of fact, and utter absurdity. Ultimately, the novel had a substantial impact on labor history and public health, as the passage of the 1906 Federal Meat Inspection Act was partially a result of the outcry stemming from the book. The Jungle is one of the most noteworthy novels in American history, though not for the reason that its author had intended. I would have, I mean, obviously we learned about it in school, um, the jungle, but I would have never thought that uh, his intention was what it was and not to, you know, reform some of these major, I guess, health and food violations. But Right. Well, so I listened to the first half of the audiobook. Because it's over 100 years old, it's now, I forget the term, but... What do you call it? Open source? Public domain. Yeah, public domain. So you can actually, on iTunes, just get the, the entire audiobook if you just search The Jungle. I listened to the first half of it. I mean, it's it's certainly very graphic and shocking. But, yeah, I mean, of course, we have the benefit of hindsight and perspective. But to me, upon researching this and learning that, I mean, I wasn't particularly surprised that the public was mostly focused on the food aspect. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's the aspect that most readily affects them, I guess. Yeah, I, everyone. I guess it, unless, mm. like, yourself or your neighbor is working at uh, one of these plants in, across the country. Yeah. Yeah. But, so, the, I mean, the it is interesting because... It seems as, of course, you and I can never know, but it seems as if the accounts of the factories were sensationalized to at least some degree. Right. But there is a very large, there, a lot of it was true. Right. And I mean, you just have to wonder how much, I'm sure just some of it is for, it's, it's he's writing a book, so he's trying to make it an interesting story. So, yeah. I mean, you have to play it up a little bit, I guess, but. Yeah, I mean, still is relevant today. <laughs> yep. Still uh, still comes up today. Yep. Brian, what do you have next? I'm staying in San Francisco again. Oh, wow. Ah, look at that. Huh? So the earthquake and the fallout from it over the summer, um, it really opened up the proverbial floodgates for all the other issues that were plaguing the city. So, bumbling under the surface and occasionally overtly, tensions between native Californians and incoming Asian immigrants had been growing over the course of a couple of decades. Many resented the immigrants for taking jobs within the community and were outwardly disapproving of them. Due to the fact that there was not all that much of an influx of Japanese immigrants coming into the country, however, it was an issue that was placed on the back burner. With the Russo-Japanese War taking center stage, however, some began to feel wary about the presence of Japanese immigrants in their community. President Roosevelt played a major role in putting an end to the Russo-Japanese War, as we had mentioned last episode, but racial tensions were heightened. In the spring of 1906, the earthquake that ripped through the city caused an even greater divide between the community. In the aftermath of the earthquake, some within the city saw this as an opportunity to remove Chinese and Japanese immigrants from the city center and push them out towards the boundaries of the town. 
the California legislature convened and decided to take a strong stance against immigration, passing a resolution that urged Congress to pass laws that would limit the inflow of immigrants from Asia. Along with that, newspapers began anti-Japanese campaigns, unions organized boycotts of Japanese businesses, a Japanese-Korean exclusion league was formed, and perhaps most infamously, the San Francisco School School Board announced a plan that spiked international tensions between the U.S. and Japan. On October 11, 1906, the San Francisco Board of Education adopted a policy that would segregate Japanese students and directed principals of all schools to, quote, to send, quote, all Chinese, Japanese, and Korean children to a newly formed Oriental school. This sparked a national and international uproar as Japanese immigrants were obviously upset and the Japanese government saw it as a violation of a treaty from 1894 that granted Japanese people in the United States the same rights as citizens. President Roosevelt, seeing this as a major risk to his policy plans with Japan, immediately condemned the actions and took action of his own. First sending Commerce and Labor Secretary Victor Metcalf to California, Roosevelt later delivered his stance on the issue in his address to Congress in December. Roosevelt stated, quote, The overwhelming mass of our people cherish a lively regard and respect for the people of Japan, and in almost every quarter of the Union, the stranger from Japan is treated as he deserves. That is, he is treated as the stranger from any part of civilized Europe is and deserves to be treated. But here and there, there is a most unworthy feeling that has manifested itself towards the Japanese, the feeling that has been shown in shutting them out of the common schools in San Francisco and in mutterings against them in one or two other places because of their efficiency as workers. To shut them out from public schools is a wicked absurdity when there are no first-class colleges in the land, including the universities and colleges of California, which do not gladly welcome Japanese students and on which Japanese students do not reflect credit. We have as much to learn from Japan as Japan has to learn from us, and no nation is fit to teach unless it is also willing to learn. Throughout, throughout Japan, Americans are well-treated, well and any failure on the part of Americans at home to treat Japanese with a light courtesy and consideration is by just so much a confession of inferiority in our civilization. Roosevelt eventually met with leaders in, from San Francisco at the White House in January of 1907, and they agreed to rescind the segregation order in return for a stricter immigration policy. While it was just one city's decision, this policy nearly caused an international incident. In the first episode, one of the very first topics we covered was open-door policy, and what a point of emphasis it was for the Roosevelt administration to open up trade with Japan. And so you can see why it was such a priority. Well, yeah, I mean, not only that, things were on, you know, relatively shaky ground after the Russo-Japanese War ended. So, yeah, not a good move for San Francisco for a number of reasons. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's amazing that, in the grand scheme of things, it really wasn't that long ago that something like that could happen. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's, yeah, and as you'll as we'll find out throughout your segments too, it wasn't just San Francisco that had uh, different these different tensions going on, and even later, I have other stuff to add to this as well. So, I mean, we're at an interesting time in the country where 
things are really starting to bubble to the surface. Indeed. Well, Brian, you're doing the West Coast today, and I'm doing the East, so let's go back to Atlanta here to talk about the 1906 Atlanta race riot. I said back to Atlanta, but have we had any Atlanta topics? Um, to this point? I don't think so. I mean, I think the closest we got was uh, was last last episode with Ty Cobb in Georgia, his parents. Yeah. Have you ever seen Gone with the Wind? Nope. Probably should. All-time, all-time <laughs> classic movie. <laughs> On Saturday, September 22nd, 1906, Atlanta newspapers reported four sexual assaults on white women that were allegedly perpetrated by black men. And before we detail the events that followed, it is important to note through the rest of the segment that none of those assaults were ever substantiated. Following the release of the reports, gangs of white men gathered and began to beat, stab, and shoot blacks in retaliation, pulling them off of or assaulting them on streetcars. As extra editions of the newspapers were printed, more and more white people began roaming Atlanta's downtown streets to attack blacks, and by 10 p.m., the first three blacks had been killed. By 2.30 a.m., between 25 and 30 blacks were reported dead. White mobs continued to assault blacks and destroy the homes and businesses of black people well into the night until a hard rain between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. helped suppress the rioting. On Sunday, the events were heavily publicized by national news outlets, being picked up by the New York Times and international outlets alike. That morning, a group of blacks had met to discuss actions. The group was armed in order to protect itself. Having caught wind of the meeting, Fulton County Police raided the gathering and a police officer was killed in the ensuing shootout. When asked by the New York Times what measures have been taken to prevent such an event, Atlanta Mayor James G. Woodward responded, The best way to prevent a race riot depends entirely upon the cause. If your inquiry has anything to do with the present situation in Atlanta, then I would say the only remedy is to remove the cause. As long as the black brutes assault our white women just so long, they will be unceremoniously dealt with. As a mayor that said that. A few days later, the New York Times reported that the Fulton County Grand Jury had made the following statement. Believing that the sensational manner in which the afternoon newspapers of Atlanta have presented the people the news of various criminal acts recently committed in this county has largely influenced the creation of the spirit animating the mob of last Saturday night, and that the editorial utterances of the Atlanta news for some time past have been calculated to create a disregard for the proper administration of the law and to promote the organization of citizens to act outside of the law and the punishment of crime. The black community suffered economically as a result of the riots, this due to property destruction and general disruption. The riot also led to increased segregation as well, as blacks pulled their businesses from mixed areas and increasingly settled in predominantly black neighborhoods. The riot was not covered in local histories and was largely ignored for decades. In 2006, on the riot's 100th anniversary, the city of Atlanta held events and forums to discuss the impact that it had. In 2007, it was officially made a part of the state of Georgia's public school social studies curriculum. It took a hundred years for it to be noticed in their own backyard. Well, not noticed, not but noticed, acknowledged. But acknowledged, rather, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've talked on this podcast about a lot of natural disasters, a lot of riding and events of that sort, but this one, of course, is particularly ugly more so than perhaps anything else that we've covered. And so, yeah. And, and as you mentioned, the fact that it took as long as it did for it to even be yeah, historically acknowledged is really a testament to that. 
Well, um, not to look too far in advance and not to move on from this topic too quickly, but we do have another incident coming up that is relatively similar. And then elsewhere in the country, there were uh, other riots, I think, I believe in Philadelphia um, and others that were of of similar nature. I don't think quite as um, for quite the same reasoning. But, yeah, it was that is not good by any means. No, it was a tumultuous period, without question. Tony, let's uh, let's move on a little bit. Uh, I'm going to stay on the east side of the country. Born in 1871 to railroad and coal tycoon William Thaw, Harry Thaw, Harry Thaw grew up with privileges unthinkable and perhaps unnecessary to most. Whether it was temper tantrums, throwing heavy objects at the heads of servants, or just generally causing trouble in school, Thaw showed outbursts but never faced any real consequences due to his family's influence. After transferring to Harvard, where he became came known for lighting cigars with $100 bills, Thaw picked up drinking and drug habits, cocaine and morphine, often combined. Um, that's, not, that's not good. Uh, just as just as a sidebar, there, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> I think I think on their own, and ah, live a little. <laughs> I think on their own, used as recreational drugs, uh, pretty serious, but combined. That's interesting. But well, I don't have a lot of or any experience with either. But don't those two have sort of opposite? I believe goals? so. I think one is an upper and the other is a downer. So yeah. It's a lot of fun going on there. Real tornado. Well, maybe it just felt normal. Yeah, I guess there's one way to find balance in life. <laughs> yeah, he just found the he just found the sweet spot there. I'll give it a shot someday. I think. Uh, so, he, his drug habits, his drug habits, uh, those kind of troubled him throughout his life. Unsurprisingly, living on a twenty five hundred dollar a month allowance, five times the average working family's yearly salary, thaw started to go really out of control. His actions, which included chasing a cab driver down the street with a shotgun over 10 cents and change, got him expelled from Harvard. Shortly after his expulsion, Thaw's father died and the wheels really came off. Thaw's mother expanded his monthly allowance to $8,000 a month, which allowed him to travel all around the world. It was on one of these trips that he restrained a bellboy and beat him with a riding whip. Coming to the aid of her son... Thaw's mother paid $5,000 to keep the incident out of the news. Between all of the parties that he threw, with one carrying a reported price tag of $50,000, or around $1.5 million in t- today's dollars, Thaw still sought acceptance from his fellow elites. Rejected from numerous clubs and other men's groups, Thaw saw Stanford White as the common point in each of his rejections. White was an architect and was in the same financial class as Thaw, but he generally had no interest in the spendthrift heir. Despite never really acknowledging him, White drew the ire of Thaw as the latter believed White had it out for him. Moving on from his repudiations to the elite clubs of the area, Thaw found himself drawn in by a popular actress. Evelyn Nesbitt, who was just a teen at the time of meeting Thaw, had a burgeoning career on stage and saw Thaw as a friendly face. Despite warnings from White, who cautioned Nesbitt about Thaw's character, she began to travel the world with the railroad heir. 
It was on a trip to Paris that Nesbitt made a revelation that to Thaw that would unmistakably change a number of lives. <laughs> Nesbitt, Nesbitt claimed that White overserved her. Nesbitt claimed that White overserved her champagne and, while unconscious, had his way with her. This naturally incensed Thaw and his long-standing hatred towards White, and his anger persisted throughout the entirety of the trip going so far as to leave an inscription in a visitor's book at Joan of Arc's birthplace saying she would have not been a virgin if Stanford White had been around. Later in the trip, Thaw locked Nesbitt in a room and beat her with a whip and sexually assaulted her over a two-week period. Once this two-week period came to a close, Thaw profusely apologized and was in an upbeat mood. After beginning to pursue her when she was just 16 years old, the 34-year-old Thaw married the 20-year-old Nesbitt in April 1905. Living in their Pittsburgh mansion, Nesbitt watched as Thaw's mental state further diminished. He be- she believed, no, Thaw believed that White had hired a gang to kill him and that he was constantly being tracked. Due to due this, he began carrying a gun. On June 25, 1906, Thaw and Nesbitt went on a trip to New York to see a play on the rooftop of Madison Square Garden. As the show was coming to a close, Stanford White made an appearance at a table away from Thaw. Jittery the entire night, Thaw had gone to approach White multiple times, but each time had backed off. On the final approach, Thaw fired three shots at White that killed him instantly. He raised his gun and yelled, I did it because he ruined my wife. Or life. It's not really sure. He had it coming to him. He took advantage of the girl and then abandoned her. With hundreds of witnesses, Thaw was taken into custody on charges of first-degree murder. Due to his mother's influence, White was allowed to wear his own custom-tailored clothes, was given champagne and wine, and slept on a brass bed. The trial, the trial was dubbed the trial of the century and dominated the headlines. Within one week of the murder, Thomas Edison had p- produced a film about it called Rooftop Murder. As they prepared for trial, Thaw's mother pushed against the district attorney's attempts to declare Thaw legally insane as she did not want her son to be stigmatized. She instead pushed for a defense of temporary insanity and hired a team of doctors to claim that her son's act of murder was a single aberrant act. Due to the national attention of the case, the, this trial marked the first time in American history that jury members were ordered to be sequestered. After three months of proceedings, the jury went into deliberations. Two days later, the 12 jurors were deadlocked, with seven voting guilty and five voting not guilty. In the second trial, Thaw pleaded temporary insanity and was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was sentenced to life in a state hospital for the criminally insane. This wasn't the end of Thaw's story, however, as in 1913, Thaw walked out of the asylum and was driven to the, over the Canadian border, an escape most believed to have been orchestrated by his mother. He was returned the following winter, but in July of 1915, a jury determined him to be no longer insane and he was set free. The next year, Thaw was charged with kidnapping, beating, and sexually assaulting a 19-year-old boy from Kansas City. Thaw attempted to bribe the boy's family, but again he was jailed. Yet again, however, he was later judged sane and regained his freedom in April 1924. Throughout the remainder of his life, Thaw lived a relatively quiet life in Virginia before moving to Florida in 1944. On February 22, 
1947, Thaw died of a heart attack at the age of 76 and left an estate valued at $11 million in today's dollars. Despite having seemingly every advantage in life, Harry Thaw's legacy will be that of a murderer. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah. How? Twice. <laughs> Twice. And that he was found that they deadlocked initially when there were hundreds of witnesses. Yeah. He's on the roof of Madison Square Garden. <laughs> Literally shoots a guy three times is and is like lifts the gun over his head and says he did it. He's <laughs> like, ah, uh, I don't know. Let's let's look at let's look at the evidence here. I'm not sure if he did this. Man. Yeah, so uh interesting point though about sequestering a jury. Yeah, first time ever. Yeah, because it like I said, yeah, it was the biggest trial of the century by far, at least for a while. And yeah, yeah, what a life that guy had. Indeed. So, hey, one quick note before you go on to the next topic. I want to make a correction for something I said earlier in the episode. The open door policy, of course, was between the U.S. and China, not Japan. Gotcha. Anywho, just wanted to correct that. Correct the record there. Yep. Brian. All right. What's up? Tony, born in 1906. We're going to stay... All right, on to the Americana section. We're going to stay in the uh, the crime field. Bugsy Siegel. Oh, okay. And then we got Charles Walgreen, the founder of Walgreens. Uh, They're affiliated... That family's affiliated with the University of Michigan. Walgreens? Yeah. Interesting. Another, another in the uh, extensive list. Yeah. Well, they're... Though, there's a building for the school of theater on North Campus called the Walgreens Drama Center, and actually, there's a Walgreens on State Street that has like a little, a little photo board talking about the history of their family at U of M. Interesting. Do you know it? I did not. Yeah. Uh, we I don't know if if he went there, but sir, at the very minimum, some of their family did. I would I would guarantee that. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Lou Costello of Abbott and Costello. Ed Gein, who we're going to get into years from now, but uh, one of the worst serial killers in American history. Worst as in most malicious or worst as in incompetent? Uh, no, as in like most malicious. He was, okay. I think, I believe he was the basis for Leatherface. Uh, really? Yeah. He went. Well, we'll get into it. We it's, got a little ways if he's just being born now, but uh, well, either that or he's just a junior serial killer, but uh, no, he's, we've got probably 30, 40 years before we get to uh, um, 30, 40 years in this time. Hopefully not in our podcast recording time. <laughs> Stay tuned, people. We're going to be 65 years old when I'm <laughs> recording this. Uh, we've also got Satchel Page, okay. uh, William Brennan, and Richard Overton who was a World War II veteran who just died five or six months ago at age wow. 112. That is crazy. Yeah. Um, and then died, we've got Susan B. Anthony and John Stetson, the inventor of the cowboy hat. On Satchel Page, quick note. Are you familiar with Hamtramck Stadium? I might have, I might have mm-hmm. texted you the link. But yeah, it's a pretty cool project. It's one of five. Five. Yeah. Five ne- or yeah, five Negro League ballparks that are still standing. It's awesome. Yeah. Hopefully they uh, take some efforts to maintain it. I believe well there there is a a definite grassroots effort to restore it. That's awesome. But and I think Jack White actually oh, of the that's, White Stripes that's right. just gave them a pretty significant amount of money. That's so. right. 
Jeez, Jack White doing a lot of stuff in the Detroit area. Yeah. Well, while he rebuilt. It's the least he can do because he moved. Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, inventions. The Mufaletta sandwich. Don't know what that is. Uh, you got to look this up. Uh, this, no, is, this is great. Brian is looking at this. This is great podcast. Uh, <laughs> this is great podcast material here. Sim- a little bit similar to a sub, but uh, yeah, good stuff. What's on it? Well, it can be a number of different things, but a lot of it's uh, salami. Almost like a, a lot of times like a spicy Italian, I guess. Okay. Good stuff. Yeah. Should try it sometime. Maybe this will be... Uh, I just might. <laughs> We've also got Kellogg cereal. Okay. Michigan. Battle Creek. Yeah. yeah. Uh, first radio broadcast uh, in the United States. And the toaster. Good one. And the Pentecostalism movement. Hmm. So that's, I guess, a fun fact there. We got uh, some some firsts uh, in United States history. The first time a United States president, president made a trip outside of the United States when Roosevelt visited Panama to see the construction of the Panama Canal. Now, that is truly surprising. Yes. That it took until 1906 for a president to officially leave the country. Yeah. Pretty weird. Uh, Arkin, I'm... Never mind. Just go ahead. All right. The first American awarded a Nobel Peace Prize. Can you guess who it is? It was Roosevelt, wasn't it? Yep. For en- for his role in ending the Russo-Japanese War. Yeah. Uh, we have the first Jewish U.S. government members uh, when Oscar Strauss was named Secretary of Commerce. Uh, the first forward pass, which we touched on, uh, first forward pass, which was Bradbury Robinson of St. Louis University. It was an un- incompletion. Well, hot start. <laughs> Not a lot of practice that went into it, I guess. Later, later though, he also had the first completion, a 20-yard pass to Jack Schneider. So. I'm just thinking about how, like, what a surprise to the defense the first just, ever forward pass was, but they just couldn't. What the heck is this? <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't complete it. It's like, yeah. no! I've been setting this up for years! <laughs> the coach just completely scraps passing. Like, I knew this was a gimmick. Woody Hayes said, when you throw the football, only three things can happen, and two of them are bad. Yeah, well. But I don't like that, man. <laughs> I, I, I have, so I say, let's air it out. Well, yeah, Bradbury Robinson starting off with 10 yards per attempt. Not bad. Good start. Um, That's, yeah. 1906, uh, the first time Dow, the Dow closes over 100. Uh, we just recently hit way higher than that. A lot higher than that. <laughs> You know, if I would have invested back then, I'd be rich now. So this is something that's kind of interesting. I wonder when U.S. stock indexes started, like the Dow and the S&P 500. Not sure. Did you know, I forget what year it was. It was some, obviously, of course, somewhat recently. But Warren Buffett challenged hedge fund managers across the country to beat to see if they can get a better return over, I forget the span of time, but it was a relatively long run investment to see if any hedge fund manager could beat the over the long term performance of just the S and P five hundred, and nobody could do it. I want to. I don't know why this comes to mind, but the 
the owner of the Florida Panthers. He was he was going to be appointed to some role uh, within the Trump administration. He was a hedge fund manager, and his rate of return was just astronomical, more than anyone I'd ever seen. Really? I can't remember uh, what the exact rate of return was, but uh, I would be surprised if he wasn't... Um, Look up how long, though, the Buffett challenge was. His name is Vincent Viola. So interesting. I'm not familiar with him. He was look up. Look up how long the Warren Buffett versus the S and P 500 challenge. Well, it wasn't him versus S and P 500, but if you search that, it'll right. Uh, but yeah, he was Vincent Viola was going to be named as the Secretary of the Army. Um, we might have to look this up for next episode. Okay, because. Maybe I'll have to make my. That'll, yeah, that'll be that'll be the next one. But uh, no, Vincent Viola. I'd also look into him to see uh, to see what his uh, returns were because they were absurd. Um, also, the another first in 1906, the first federal penitentiary, fe- federal penitentiary, Leavenworth, uh, which has been home to notable inmates like Whitey Bulger, James Earl Ray, and Michael Vick. Man. So, That's quite the it's cast. Quite an array of people as well. Yeah. From all, all right. walks of criminal life. Yeah. All right. Tony, we got a little bit of a longer topic here. Okay. The Harry Thaw Stanford uh, White, that shook the country in 1906. That was known as the trial of the century. Wasn't the only uh, crime and murder that uh, that grabbed national headlines. So the murder, the 1906 murder of Grace Brown was a sensation across the United States. Born just an hour south of Syracuse, New York, Grace Brown was the daughter of a successful farmer. After attending grammar school, Brown moved to Cortland, New York to work for the Gillette Skirt Company. Within around a year of her employment with the company, she began a relationship with Chester Gillette, the nephew of the company's owner. In the spring of 1906, Brown became pregnant and returned to her hometown. Not wanting her family to know of her pregnancy out of wedlock, and due to the apparent promises made by Gillette to marry her, Brown and Gillette left for the Adirondacks. They stayed for a night in Utica and eventually made it to Big Moose Lake. On July 11th, Gillette checked into their hotel under the name of Carl Graham. On the afternoon of July 11th, the two were seen rowing out on the lake. It was here that Gillette struck Brown over the head with a tennis racket. She fell out of the boat and drowned in the water. Gillette immediately returned home and told a few sets of stories that did not line up with one another. Brown's body was found the next day, and after he had been taken into police custody, Gillette claimed that Brown simply jumped in the water. Love letters from Brown to Gillette were found in the hotel room and were entered in as evidence. Copies of these letters were published into a booklet and were sold outside of the trial. With all evidence pointing to him as the culprit, Gillette was convicted of murder and was sentenced to death. An appeal filed by Gillette failed, and on March 30th, 1908, he was killed via electric chair. Wow. Yeah, not uh, not a good uh, not a good year for for errors to different uh, different companies. Yeah, not a great guy. No, no. but at least justice was served. Yeah, unlike and, and in the previous case. case. Uh, Tony, to, to kind of touch back on something you had talked about a little bit earlier. Oh. Uh, arriving, not not good, though. Okay. Not good. Uh, 
Arriving at Fort Brown in Brownsville, Texas on July 28, 1906, members of the African-American 25th Infantry Regiment were immediately subjected to a color line mandate from the citizens of the city, which required separate accommodation for white people and black people and required them to show respect for white people. On August 12th, it was reported that a white woman in the city was attacked, and it was decided by Major Charles Penrose to declare an early curfew for the soldiers. Just a day later, a white bartender was killed, and a white police officer was wounded by gunshots. <coughs> As expected, the residents of the city blamed the black soldiers, despite the fact that the all-white commanders of the base confirmed that all the soldiers were in the barracks at the time of the shooting. Residents of the city began providing evidence, including shell casings they said belonged to army rifles. Though this proved proved to not be true and were instead planted to frame the soldiers, the mayor claimed that the soldiers participated in the shooting. (coughs) Excuse me. An investigation was held, and despite no indictments returning, President Roosevelt ordered 167 of the black troops to be dishonorably discharged at the recommendation of the Army's Inspector General. Unsurprisingly, the black community was outraged by this and began to turn against President Roosevelt. In 1908, the Senate investigated the incident and found no evidence to overturn President Roosevelt's decision. Fourteen soldiers were re-enlisted in 1910, but for the remainder, there was no justice until much later. It wasn't until 1970 that the case was reopened when Congressman Augustus Hawkins from California, after reading a book about the matter by historian John Weaver, introduced a bill to have the Department of Justice reinvestigate the matter. In 1972, the Army found the accused members to be innocent, and President Richard Nixon awarded them honorable discharges, though without back pay. In 1973, the last survivor, Dorsey Willis, received a tax-free $25,000 pension and was honored across the country. Our legal system had a long way to go during the turn of the century. It was not a good year. Uh, it was not a good year for uh, as far as that goes. And again, no, it, nothing was righted or even taken a step towards being righted Til for far, years later. far yeah, too late. Until there was one survivor left. So, Tony, we're uh, we're doing like we normally do. We've got some baseball. Yeah, have to. So, regarded by the Philadelphia Inquirer as the greatest game in the history of Major League Baseball at the time, the Philadelphia Athletics faced off against the Boston Americans in a game between a playoff contender and a team that was looking for the season to end. After four hours and 47 minutes, the Athletics claimed a 4-1 victory over the Americans in an incredible 24-inning affair after they scored three innings in the tw- three runs in the 24th inning to break the 1-1 tie. Four hours and 47 minutes for a 24-inning game. <laughs> That's crazy. But what was a great back-and-forth game was made even more impressive by the pitching performances on the day. Athletics rookie Jack Coombs, pitching on two days rest, went the entire 24 innings and struck out 18 batters. His opponent, Joe Harris, who entered the game with a 2-17 record, also went the full 24, (laughs) including an in-game 20-inning scoreless streak. Originally scheduled to be a doubleheader, the second game was understandably canceled. 
If it wasn't bad enough, and what will make pitching enthusiasts of today cringe, Coombs threw two more complete games for the Athletics in the following ten days. <laughs> Do they have pitch counts on the baseball reference page for <laughs> this game? Unfortunately not. That guy Man. had to have thrown well over 200 pitches. Oh, yeah. That is brutal. And my arm hurts currently just thinking about it. Man. Have you followed any of... Um, any of the college baseball? Yeah, Michigan's on to the College World Series. They took down, yeah, they took down UCLA. Did you see Vanderbilt, their freshman pitcher? No. Freshman pitcher, he's six foot four, two hundred and fifty-five pounds. Nice. Vanderbilt against Duke. He throws a no-hitter and has nineteen strikeouts. Really? Unbelievable. He started the game with a 99-mile-an-hour fastball, and in the ninth, he had a 97-mile-an-hour fastball. That's unbelievable. Is he he drafted? He skipped it. Really? He opted not to be. He opted to go to college. And so now he's got two more years at Vanderbilt. Good for him. I mean, great college. So Unbelievable, though. uh, I'm sure he has a future. Kumar Rocker, I believe his name is. It's a name to remember. Let me let me make sure that I have that I have his name correct just uh, just to give him the proper credit. Kumar Rocker, yes. Okay. I know what I'm talking about. Vanderbilt's a great baseball program. They are. He actually broke David Price's uh, strikeout record really? for college. So another Vanderbilt alum. I'm looking forward to the College World Series. It was Michigan beat David Price. They did. Yeah. I remember that game. Great game. Yep. Yeah. They have the Sports uh, sports page framed the Downer Baseball Center. Really? Yeah. I always remember seeing that when I was going in there. I went in there a ton, too, and I don't remember it. Right by the door, man. Wow. Should have looked around, I guess. What a place. It is a great place. And uh, the, the former Michigan pitching coach, Terry Hunter, was always just hanging around there. Yeah. And Jeff Kaiser, obviously. Yeah. Just really name-dropping some Downriver Baseball games here. I... Thought the world, Jeff Kaiser. Yeah. I think the world of Jeff Kaiser. Yeah. Nice guy. Yeah. Worked with him a lot. Well, here we are. We're, we both worked with him a lot. I don't know if this is any... <laughs> this, is not, this is not a good indictment. Neither of us have played a competitive <laughs> inning of baseball in over five years. So. Played beer league softball, so I mean, he's got that on his resume, I guess. Yeah. On, on a baseball topic, good luck to the Trent Trojans in the uh, state semifinals. An incredible run for yeah, Coach yeah. Todd Zelka. Where's Grozio at, Tony? I do not know. <laughs> but I'm assuming they're not in it any longer. Graduated. Uh, Tony, we're they're going ha- pro in something other than sports. <laughs> yeah, more than likely. <laughs> <laughs> Business something related. Uh, we're going to stay, we're going to go back to Chicago. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to have to depress you a little bit here okay. with, the, with the results. Entering the 1906 World Series as by far the best team in baseball, the Chicago Cubs had obliterated the wins record with 116 victories in a 154-game season. It was the first time in the World Series. It was their first time in the World Series, just as it was for their opponent and crosstown rival, Chicago White Sox. Finishing with a respectable 90-71 and record, the White Sox were largely largely propelled by a pitching staff that featured 20-game winners Frank Owen and Nick Altrock. Their team ERA of 2.13 helped overcome their American League low team batting average of just 230. With the White Sox problems at the plate and the Cubs' regular season dominance, the National League... 
the National League Chicago representative, was the heavy favorite. Despite the scoring just six runs throughout the first four games, the series stood at 2-2. Two to two. The White Sox scored six runs, that is. The bats came alive for both teams in a pivotal Game 5, and though they made six errors in the game, the White Sox snagged an 8-6 to six win. In Game 6, the White Sox bats were alive once again as they dominated star Cubs pitcher Mordecai Three-Finger Brown. In one of the unlikeliest upsets of all time, the White Sox defeated the Cubs and claimed their first World Series victory. It would be another 102 years before each team would make the playoffs in the same season. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I bet some Cubs fans went to Murphy's Bleachers after that game to commiserate. (laughs) Right across the street. So, yeah, the Tony, yeah, you would have been a depressed guy in 1906. That's okay. Success was right around the corner. That's true. The, the Cubs did uh, they did uh, come together pretty soon there and uh, ripped off some World Series wins. So What year was the Black Sox scandal? Oh, no, wait. wait it's 100. It was 1919. Yeah, it's, it's the 100th anniversary. Yeah. That is a, I can't wait to cover that topic. Maybe we'll just do a special special episode. Just not cover 1919 other than that. Just <laughs> There you go. There's there's the future of it. Um, All right, Brian, do we have any... Are you going to tease anything for 1907? I am. Um, there was... We had talked about the stock market before and even in this episode, but uh, there was a panic in 1907 that caused a ton of stuff to all go, go on throughout the economy and the country. Um... There's quite a bit of fallout uh, from that. There's obviously uh, some more disasters. Um, Pike Place Market and UPS were founded, so we'll, I'm sure we'll uh, touch on both of those. And uh, you know, we got we got a whole lot more as always. Uh, Tony, you got uh, anything to uh, close off 1906? It was an eventful year, and yet again. As we do these episodes, we're getting more and more, we are covering more and more events that are sort of illuminated by the context of events that we've previously covered. And I always find that enjoyable when, you know, I just feel like we're, we're getting a richer picture of the decade that was. So I enjoyed that aspect of it and I'm looking forward to doing that even more in two weeks. Well, and I mean, we can to, to add to your point there. We're also you can see us laying the groundwork for tons of other things that are that are happening throughout the the rest of the 1900s. Yeah. So we've got that going on. Absolutely. Tony, well, all right, Brian. Tony, we uh, we had a good run here. 1906 is an interesting one. Yep. 1907, right around the corner. We've got a couple Tuesdays from now. So Tony, again, remind uh, remind our listeners where to find us. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and also you can follow us on Twitter at Luckiest Man Pod. We are. We we've seen in the last uh, since our last episode came out. We're we're more active Twitter users now, and you can find some interesting content that lines up. Yeah, it's a good time, people. It's not just links to the episodes. We got on this day, and we got. On this day. Yeah. A couple more on this days coming your way and uh, a lot more. So uh, 
Be sure to follow us on Twitter. Again, like Tony said, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And uh, stay stay uh, looking out for 1907 a couple weeks from now. Thanks for listening.